This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On this special Red for Ed edition of Jacobin Radio, we continue our UTLA teacher strike coverage, beginning with former teacher, member of the school board, city council, and state assembly, Jackie Goldberg, who's now running in the March 5th special election to the LAUSD, that's Los Angeles Unified School District, board. If elected, Jackie will be an experienced and effective progressive voice for public education opposing the charter allies elected with money from the bankrollers who've stacked the deck against district public schools. She's been on the picket lines every morning in the rain promising to, quote, throw her body in front of the moving train that is trying to privatize public education. We talked to Jackie about the strike, the fight to save public education, and how the forces are aligned from Los Angeles to Sacramento to Washington. We then speak to Eric Blanc, former high school teacher, current grad student, and author of the just-published Red State Revolt, the Teacher Strike Wave, and Working Class Politics. Eric has been covering the strike for Jacobin Magazine and joins us for a look at the larger issues in the UTLA strike, the billionaires arrayed against the L.A. schools, the dilemma this strike poses for establishment Democrats, and why this fight back is historic. Eric maintains that at its core, the strike is a fight against the hostile takeover of public schools by the super-rich. All this on Jacobin Radio when we return in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and extremely pleased to have Jackie Goldberg with us today. She's got a long history of working for democracy and equality in education, fighting for students, standing with educators, and partnering with parents in the ongoing struggle for public education. Nothing could be more important at this moment in Los Angeles and in the country. And I should say, after Jackie's long career as a classroom teacher, she served for two terms on the Los Angeles Unified District School board, two terms on the L.A. City Council, and three terms in the California State Assembly, where she has led an effort to expand the scope of bargaining for teachers' unions, to include curriculum and textbooks, and a lot more. But since leaving public office, Jackie has been a relentless leader and tireless organizer in countless community-based efforts to increase for one, sensible regulation of charter schools and to prevent the privatization of the LA Unified School District. And she's been an unapologetic voice for the role of the district as an essential civic institution in Los Angeles. Now, as we're speaking today, she's running in the special election in the 5th Board District of Los Angeles for the LA USD School Board. And that's going to be held just weeks away on March 5th. But Jackie's also been on the picket lines every morning at all the impressive rallies. As we're speaking and recording this, she has just spoken at the impressive Let the Sunshine In rally and moreover has tweeted something that's been very inspiring. I will throw my body in front of the moving train that is trying to privatize public education every single day. So Jackie Goldberg, with all of that, and I could say so much more, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm really pleased to do that. And I know that you are facing a 
big election battle here where the billionaires stack the deck against you and against the district public schools. But before we get there, why don't we just get an update for you about this hugely exciting moment. We're in the the fifth day, finished the first week of this strike. And maybe you could just sort of capture the mood today and what's being fought for. Well, there were literally tens of thousands of people at the rally. I picketed this morning at two schools, Aldama Elementary and Arroyo Seco Magnet Elementary and Middle School. And, you know, yesterday I was at Southgate High School and at Wadsworth Elementary, and before that I was at Carver Middle School. So I've been throughout a lot of the district picketing with teachers in the pouring rain, Elysian Heights Elementary. Oh, my God, we got deluged the yes. day before yesterday. I thought the <clears throat> sky had just opened up. And, but the thing that's so interesting and so different so different than most times I've ever been on picket lines supporting strikers is the solidarity of the teachers and the parents and in secondary schools, the students Hmm. who are on the picket lines with the teachers, with the nurses, with the psychologists and the counselors and the librarians, because they know that what this strike is about is not essentially salaries, although our salaries are low. But it is essentially about the fact that when the Great Recession came, the district cut millions and millions of dollars from the district. Okay, so maybe they had to do that then. But since then, the economy has grown. Unemployment is decreased. Employment has become nearly universal. And the state government and the school district both have had enormous increases in their revenues. Yet you don't see the district hiring more teachers. For $200 million, you can get 2,000 teachers and begin to lower the massive class sizes. Right. It is typical to have 40 kids in a classroom. One of the speakers today read the names of her 40 students just in fourth period, Hmm. and it took her five minutes just to read their names. Yeah, it's just to read their names. I mean, it's you cannot teach with 40 or 45 students in your classroom. Well, you can, but you can't be as effective as you need to be, particularly because a lot of our children in LA Unified are vulnerable. So I want to get to Jackie because you just raised an incredibly important point, and that is sort of, it really begs the question of what's happening to public education. It's something that you're fighting for at the same time as fighting against you know, what we're calling further privatization or charterization that robs money, you know, from the district. And I think you also said, you know, and has UTLA and talking about the district's money, that they have this giant rainy day fund. And as you've just said, it's been raining. So why not use the rainy day fund? But before we get there, I want you to explain to our listeners, really, what the charter movement is about and why, you know, that this is being pushed so much. And you've stated that charters weaken public education. You've also stated that the economy, you know, that there's less unemployment right now. It kind of begs the question, if they're starving this public schools and not paying for public education, is it the case that they don't want an educated citizenry? You know, don't people want an educated populace? Yeah. Let, let's start with the, the charter stuff, first, yep. and then we'll come back to the more political, philosophical questions. <laughs> okay. The answer to that is yes, they don't want them educated. The charter movement has really two faces. One face is the fact that because they have good funding, private funding in addition to public funding, 
Their class sizes are often smaller than traditional public schools, and they often have they have more counselors. They do a lot of things that the public schools used to do before we were being starved. So there are the people who teach in them and the people who try to get them up and running. And I would say for the most part, I would say that these are all people who care about kids and want things to go well. Mm. But the people behind this, the people who are forcing up the legislation in Sacramento, the people who lied about what Proposition 39 was about, those people are the literally billionaire privatizers that after New Orleans and Katrina decided that we don't need public schools anymore. Mm. And they have put in literally tens of millions of dollars in elections around the country so that, for example, Marshall Tuck, a guy who knows nothing about public education, ran for superintendent in public instruction in his general election. That's not the primary. In the general election, the charter people spent $40 million dollars now, when was the last time anybody spent $40 million on a superintendent of public instruction? The mm. answer is never. Right. In fact, <clears throat> if you've got people who have spent 5 or $10 million, even in a state as big as California, you would say, wow, that's a pretty expensive race for superintendent of public instruction. Why did they want Marshall Tuck? Because Marshall Tuck does not support public education. He supports privatizing using charters. Why do they care about that? Because they don't like having to worry about who gets elected to school boards. You see, charters pick their own people to be on the board. You can't run for the board. You can't recall them from the board if they're doing a lousy job. And in fact, in some cases, if they're in a what they call a charter management organization, they're not even required to hold public meetings. So you can't even go listen to what they're doing, even though you don't get to vote for them and even though you couldn't kick them out of office. Now, why, people say, if they're getting public money, how are they making profit? Well, some some of the charter folks in, in these in non so-called nonprofit organizations are calling themselves superintendents of schools, and uh, there's a superintendent uh, over a, a charter group of schools that has maybe between all of them about 5,000 students. That superintendent is getting a salary of $313,000 a year. Mm. In addition to which, charter schools can rent their space from a member of their board or the niece or the brother of the member of the board. The food services can be provided by a relative, a friend, a good friend. Uh, they, they have been requiring parents to do the lunch duty so that they don't have to pay classified people to cook and serve food. So what they do is basically is to say that they can have smaller classes so you all come here, but the point of it is to get rid of classified employees. The point of it is to be involved in what I would call nepotism in terms of who they hire to do the various tasks and what kind of funding they get to spend on the vendors that are coming to their schools, whether it's for books or whether it's for anything else. So that's the problem. Now, what the goal is... That's and, the key. And yeah. it actually, it came out because Broad's leaked document leaked. He mm-hmm. wanted by 2025, I think it is, for 50% of the children in the district 
to be in charter schools. And he said that they were willing to put up about $450 million to make that happen. So now how can they make that happen? Well, one of the ways they do that is by electing people to the school board of Los Angeles who are indebted to them. So in the last big election for school board, Bennett Kaiser, an outstanding board member, and Steve Zimmer, an outstanding board member, were both defeated in a $13.5 million campaign. Can you imagine spending $13.5 million on a school board election? Mm. Why would people spend that kind of money? And who's the money coming from? It's coming from Walmart, the Walton family. It's coming from Eli Broad. It's coming from the guy from Netflix. He puts in millions of dollars every year to the charter stuff. It's coming from people whose names we don't know because they don't live in California, but they can send what we call dark money for independent expenditures to run against people like me. And so basically what you have is is you have a cabal of wealthy people don't want to pay taxes anymore, don't want to worry about having school board members they can't control, and do want to have a privatized system Whereas, frankly, if not everybody gets educated, it's not really their problem. There's one more aspect, and I'm so glad you answered that so clearly, Jack Goldberg, and it fits right into your campaign, you know, to get back on the board and challenge, you know, those who are the privatizers there. But this strike, this LAUSD strike has caught the imagination across the country and indeed the world. I see solidarity messages coming in from Britain and Germany and Greece, where everybody sees the fight for public education to be also a fight about the public. And what you've just mentioned is that those who are behind this want not only to weaken public education, but to make it unaccountable. So in in essence, it's anti-democratic. But on the other hand, you know, let's talk about the fight against it. In the end, you know this as well as anyone, politics is always a relationship of Forces. Right now, the, in California, you have a Democratic Party in control, so you're not fighting, you know, stingy Republican lawmakers who hate, who have, you know, in their DNA to hate taxes. We're fighting Democrats. And so there's been this skittishness from the Democratic establishment, both nationwide and even in California, who want to support the teachers but don't want to, I guess, offend their donors, their billionaire donors, who also might be progressive on certain issues, but not not this one. So let's talk about how this fits into your campaign and how you see, you know, if you are elected, what that will do, backed by the teachers union and the population in support of these ideas, what will that help you do on the board? Well, on the board, I can help other board members who may not understand that the rainy day fund that the district has is almost $2 billion, (laughs) and that it is a savings that they have been keeping now for about four years. It wasn't quite $2 billion several of the years ago, but it's been always over a billion and a half in the last four years. And you say to yourself, why won't they hire more teachers? Why, you know... The reason, there are several reasons, but one reason is, is is that any money that goes from the board to the LAUSD schools is something that the charter people don't get any money from. So they're not interested in it happening, and I'll give you a good example. Before the November ballot closed, that means before it was decided what would be on the ballot in the way of propositions, the school board did a poll 
of what would a poll, what a uh, parcel tax, a small parcel tax, raise? It was tens of millions of dollars, and it wouldn't have cost the homeowner very much. Interestingly enough, it had a two-thirds, 67 percent support without a campaign. This is before <laughs> a campaign in favor of it. So a bunch of us went down to the board and said, here, you got time. Vote to put this on the ballot. You can put this on the ballot. Well, the superintendent, hired by four charter school members of the board, and Ref Rodriguez, who's the young man who had to resign because he was indicted and therefore pled guilty to money laundering in his campaign for the board. So he was under indictment but did not refuse to leave office until they hired the new superintendent without a search. Right. And they came up with Butner, and Butner is a hedge fund guy. And Butner, in public, said, oh, no, we don't want to do this because we might lose and it'll make it harder to win later. And, of course, there were only, uh, at that point, six members of the board, and three of them were paid for by charters, and they voted not to put it on the ballot. Well, a ballot proposition with a tax in it from the county for our water issues passed by 71%. We knew this ballot proposition would pass because we knew there was going to be a blue wave in California and in Los Angeles. And guess what? Why wouldn't charter people vote to put that tax on the ballot? Because they wouldn't have gotten a cent of it. It would have all gone to district schools. The charter people are interested in raising more money for schools only if they get it. Yeah. They don't care about the other kids, the 80% of the kids that would have benefited from this by having smaller class sizes and a nurse every day at school instead of once a week. So, you know, they have a different interest, and their interest is expanding charters regardless of the consequences to public education. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm speaking with Jackie Goldberg. How do you see this fight now, given, you know, the tremendous success so far in community support and understanding what the teachers are fighting for on the board? So you just mentioned all of these issues. And I also said, even though you've got a board that's pretty evenly divided, if you get on, I think you should talk about what the numbers are going to be. And But we've also seen a crack in the board that Schmerelson and now I don't remember the other guy's name. Have, McKenna. Yeah. Have, Dr. Ha, McKenna. Yeah. They've come out against the Butner policy and uh, Marsha Garcia and also said that there's been a gag rule and that there's been deceitful advertising and slanted op-eds. But now, you know, it's, it seems that I think the backbone of the support for the teacher strike has given even more courage to those who speak out. So can you talk a little bit about how you see what will happen if you get on and how that will affect the board? And then I want to ask you after that about legal obstacles. But let's start with this. Okay, so what will change is is that there will not be a fourth vote for the charters. Okay, that's what this election is supposed to do. It's supposed to elect someone from a charter organization to take Ref Rodriguez's place, who was a charter uh, himself, a, a, a person who ran a charter school. Mm. So that's that's the change. It keeps them from being permanently in charge of every vote because they have four votes. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's the big change. Does it mean we have four votes for public education? I'm not sure. We will have three, which will be uh, Dr. McKenna and Mr. Schmerlson and myself. 
And I think we might get Kelly Gomez, and I think we might get Dick Vladovic on occasion to come and join us, but I'm not positive about that. But for sure, they will no longer have a four-vote slam dunk for anything that the charters want, and that's really a very primary motivation for me running for this office. Now, given your experience in the legislature and on Education Committee and all of your contacts in the county and state with privatization as really the main issue on the board, what can you do? And I know that there was a framework in law that was established in 1990 on charter schools. And so could you address the question? Let's say that, you know, in the most optimistic scenario, the anti-charter or let's say anti-further privatization wins. How would that change in terms of state law and what actually happens? Well, you see, what we need to do is to say, look, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, It is not the parent making a decision to put their kid in a charter school that's the problem. That is not a problem. It's not a problem because that parent is like every other parent when they make that decision, having decided that that might be the best place for their kid to go to school. I take no exception to that. However, the system is rigged. So let's talk about a school that has 350 kids. Okay, it pays for gas, it pays for electricity, it it pays for a plant manager to keep the school clean and pays for a custodial staff to make sure that the bathrooms are clean and the classrooms are clean. It pays for cafeteria workers and food for the students. And let's say 50 students leave. Okay, that leaves us 300 instead of 350. You lose 100 percent of the money. But you don't lose 100% of the fixed costs. That's the rigging of it in Sacramento. That's what the charter people wanted. They wanted every child that comes to them not only to give them more money, but to make sure that the schools in L.A. Unified or anywhere else in the state, like Oakland and Inglewood, who are being decimated by charters, that they cannot afford to keep up just the fixed costs on their schools because they lose 100% of the money, whereas the fixed cost may be 15 or 20% of the money. So we need the legislature to say it's time to look at charter legislation. There may have been unintended consequences. The conspiracy theorists among us think that they were intended, but it really (laughs) doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it was intended or unintended. The fact of the matter is, is that there is no dispute that it is undermining the financial support for 80% of the students in L.A. Unified. So I've asked Speaker Anthony Rendon if he would appoint a select committee to take a look at the positives and the negatives of 26 years of charter school legislation. And he has committed to doing so. I'm going to ask Tony Atkins, who's the Speaker Pro Tem of the Senate, to do the same. And she's already endorsed me, so we will have more conversations about this. But it is time to say that there are some, if you want to have charter schools, have them. But don't have them in a rigged system. And let me tell you other ways that it's rigged, okay? Yeah. We have two charter schools in Los Angeles that have been chartered by Victorville. Victorville, (laughs) yes. You can charter a school in anybody else's district under current law from anywhere in the state. That's got to stop. Yeah. Victorville is not going to make sure that the two charters that they did are held accountable. They don't even come to Los Angeles from Victorville. So we've got to say charters can only be chartered by school districts. 
Then we have Crenshaw High School, built for 3,000 students, has 800 kids in it now, and about six or seven charter high schools that have been permitted to surround it. None of those charter high schools has a full campus either, because now they're all competing for the same students. And the result is, is that no high school student in the Crenshaw area has a school that they can go to that offers a complete program of high school offering courses. This should not be permitted. Districts should be the only ones who decide where charter schools, once chartered, can go. The state needs to put together a fund that says for school districts, their fixed costs will be paid for by the state when they lose students. Not the student cost that pays for a, a teacher, but for all of those costs that remain, whether or not there are 300 or 350 students on that campus. So there are fixes to this that would make the two systems actually cooperative and not be a focus of trying to privatize and public education. This will be a hard sell because the charter folks that are the billionaire privatizers have spent literally tens of millions of dollars on Democrats in our state legislature to the extent that we have at the Assembly Education Committee, which I chaired for the four of the six years I was there, at that committee you have a hard time getting a Democrat to serve on Assembly Ed because they don't want to alienate the people who keep sending them campaign contributions. So this is a mess, but it is a mess that I think the teachers and the counselors and the nurses and the psychologists that are on strike are beginning to help the public and therefore I hope the legislators to understand that this is not just whether or not a charter school is better than a public school. It's that we don't have accountability for charter schools. We don't have transparency for charter schools. They do not have to submit their budgets to the county office of education. And as a result of that, we have the celerity woman, CEO of her charter schools, who just stole two, more than $2 million from her kids for personal uh, high-end purchases for herself and her family. We have a, on the first day of school, an a elementary school, charter school in Eagle Rock that closed because there was no money for that school. And no one knew that until the first day of school because they did not have to submit their budget to the county office of education. So there are fixes. Right. Well, Jackie Goldberg, this is all really interesting. I want to follow up on one point, though, that you made about the sort of motivation behind this, which is, you know, anti-democratic at its core. But right now, and we'll get back to your campaign in a minute, but right now it seems that the wind is at your back. This strike, even the statements that have been made by Newsom and Garcetti, that's our governor and mayor of Los Angeles, who, you know, at least seem to support somewhat a moratorium on further charterization for the present, and plus the fact that if you win on the school board, will help, and then Tony Thurmond as well. How do you see the relationship of forces now for doing this? And, and also, just one other thing on this anti-democratic nature, what about also fighting to unionize charter school teachers? Actually, that's already going on. Yeah. Okay. And there are a growing number of charter school teachers who are in unions, and the Alliance charter school teachers went on strike two days ago. Right. So there are charter school teachers on strike right now in L.A. Unified. So I think that the anti-democratic part about this is, is that, first of all, 
as the NAACP has said, and it's calling for a nationwide moratorium on charter school additions for now, has said it had an effect of resegregating schools, in some cases by class, but in most cases by class and race. And so what you have is white flight, in essence, leaving schools that were not perhaps completely integrated, but somewhat integrated, and now going to schools that are majority white, and that has caused some additional segregation within L.A. Unified. But in addition to which, charter schools don't all keep all of the students that they take. By law, they have to take everybody in that applies, and if there are too many applications, it has to be a lottery. But some of them have decided that if you're in the chartering organization, your kids get to go in first. So that undermines that. In addition to which, there is a widespread practice, though not universal, among charter schools of what they call counseling children out. Wow. And these are children who may have special ed needs that they don't want to meet, so they don't hire a special ed teacher. They call the parent and they say, gee, your child has special ed needs. That public school across the street has a special ed program. I think it might be better for you to to have your child there. And then at some time around March, February or March, just before the testing cycle begins for state tests, you get a lot of schools counseling out children who are not achieving well in school, saying to their parents, and I've actually personally witnessed this, mm-hmm. they say to the parents, we're not meeting your child's needs. <laughs> I think they would be happier at school X or school Y, which is, of course, a public school. Then the child leaves because they can't, the, uh, the, and, and by the way, they make it sound like it's a choice, but it really isn't. They say that we're not meeting your child's needs, and you have two weeks to find another place for him, and we'll help you do that, or another place for her, and we'll help you do that. So what they do is they counsel these kids out. These kids then go take their state-mandated achievement tests at a school they did not attend for the year, uh, and their scores are included in the school that takes them in because, you see, unlike charter schools, LAUSD schools accept every kid who walks in the door, period. Right. Period. Jackie, let's take this back finally to your campaign in the 5th Ward District, which you should describe. Right. But I, as I understand it, it's a Latino and white district, and you are 100% supported by unions and by the Latino community. So let's talk about what this campaign is focusing on and how you see it turning out. Well, we're focusing on two things. One is to tell the school district's board and its uh, current board and its superintendent that they need to invest in the children, and so they need to spend perhaps as much as half of their reserve um, on adding more teachers and counselors and nurses and psychiatric social workers and uh, special ed teachers and adult ed teachers and early education teachers. They need to do that, and that's what one of the things we're focusing on. We're also focusing on the fact that we're the fifth richest economy in the world in California, that we have so much money that there's not only no excuse for not properly funding public education, there's no excuse for there being tuition at UC and CSU, there's no excuse for there being the high level of poverty in California, or as many people who don't have health insurances don't have it. So 
this is a rich, rich, rich state. We need to tax the wealth of this state and make sure that we get this done. So I've been running uh, in in uh, both ends of the district, uh, from Eagle Rock uh, uh, and El Sereno and uh, Highland Park and uh, Mount Washington and Echo Park and Los Feliz and Silver Lake. And there's one school in East L.A. and one school, because uh, you have to connect the district to the southeast. And I've been meeting with Padres Unidos, who's endorsed me in Southgate, and with a lot of other folks. Now, I will say, and I want to be very candid, it would have been nice, and it is essential that in 2020 we make an effort to make sure that there is enough time in a general and primary election for Latino and Latinas who are really qualified to run, but in a special would not have a chance to Mm. win. And that's really why I'm in this race, is because it takes name recognition in a campaign that is roughly two months long Uh for you to win the race. It got me into the race, because I, I will tell you, there are some wonderful candidates, Latino candidates, in this race. But in the short period of time of four to six weeks before people vote, they would not, no matter what they had in the way of money, been able to get their message out. So my goal in this is to hold this seat, to keep it from being a fourth seat for the charter elected uh, board members, and then to help anybody and everybody who is really well qualified, but now with a real campaign for election that begins in 2020, will have an opportunity to represent this district into the future. Well, may the wind be at your back as it is today, and we wish you all the luck in the world, and thank you so much for taking time to really explain the issues in this special election for the school board that really could change the nature of charterization, privatization, and all the issues that the UTLA is fighting for on the streets today. Jackie Goldberg. Thanks for having me, and if your listeners want to help out, they can go to our website, JackieGoldberg.org. And they can volunteer, they can send money, they can take pictures of the teachers picketing at their school with them as parents uh, supporting them. They can do lots of things that will be helpful. Including org. thank you very much. Thank you, Jackie Goldberg. I'm Susie Wiseman. You can also go there and sign up for phone banking. Jackie Goldberg has a very long history of fighting for democracy and equality in education, standing firm on public education. And she is now a candidate in the special election for the LAUSD school board. That's being held on March 5th, and it's for the 5th Board District. And thanks again, Jackie, for being with us. Thank you so much, On Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. I'm very pleased to have Eric Blanc with us. He writes on labor movements past and present and used to be a high school teacher in the Bay Area and is now a doctoral student at the in the sociology department at NYU. That's New York University. And he's been writing about the teacher revolts in last year, 2018. 
in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, and now Los Angeles, where he's been embedded all week in the rain, picketing and writing. His book, Red State Revolt, The Teacher's Strike Wave and Working Class Politics, is uh, coming out right about now, published by Verso and Penguin Books. And his articles on the uh, UTLA strike have appeared in Jacobin, The Guardian, and elsewhere. And really, this we're going to talk about the centrality of opposition to charter growth, which has been the kind of um, – it's been the focus of this strike and of the protest, as, as well as all of the other demands that all amount to what's going on in the attack on public education. And given the difference between, you know, the Los Angeles strike and the strikes in the red states, and that is that this time the uh, strikers are not striking against a Republican-controlled legislature. This time it puts the Democrats in in an uncomfortable position because the Democratic Party is often or has long straddled an awkward political balancing act between the charter school and the labor movements, both of which have funded Democratic candidates. And the Democrats have paid lip service to the labor movement, but in fact, uh, in official educational policy, have been backing the charters. And so now we've got a situation where Democratic lawmakers, both national and um, state and local, have been... um, focused on the teachers, mostly, again, supporting them, but have a large number of them have been quiet on this one issue about charter school growth. Now, with all of that, welcome to Jacobin Radio, Eric Blanc. Great. Thanks, Susie. It's great to be on. Thank you. And I just wanted to say that, you know, because there's been this bipartisan consensus nationally on education reform, and what we saw before under George W. Bush was standardized testing and accountability, the leave no child behind, but also a push for charter schools, and then austerity, which increased with the 2007-8 crisis under the Obama administration. And what, you know, Bush's policy had done was to punish underperforming schools, but it was championed in different ways by the Democrats. And from there, it went, I, I guess I could, you could say, from holding teachers and schools accountable through testing to the Obama administration policy under Arne Duncan of just outright school closing and pushing charters. So maybe we could begin there, and you could talk a little bit about what the program is and how it came to be a core feature of the Democratic Party's educational reform. Right. So I think the the first thing to say is that as you mentioned, the significance of the Los Angeles strike is that it puts all of the contradictions of the Democratic Party uh, in full display in a way that maybe some people on the left understood, but I don't think was broadly uh, seen by the public and uh, not even a lot of labor militants. And so what Los Angeles has put at the fore is that exactly the same policies uh, of privatization and charters uh, have been imposed in deep blue states like California. And some people find that surprising, but as you mentioned, this actually goes way back. So uh, really the charters um, were hegemonic. Uh, it's not just that they were straddling, but actually the, the Democratic Party leadership, um, going back actually to Clinton, uh, this predates Obama. Um, but really, really, when you have the Obama administration and with Arne Duncan in particular, uh, really pushing very far on the question of charters in particular. And so in a place like California, um, which has been long controlled by the Democrats, the 
Los Angeles school system, for instance, over the last 10 years, has seen a 287% increase in charters. Now, this is under Democratic mayors. Um, and it, so it's significant that the same charter associations um, are f- funding both Democrats and Republicans. And sometimes, in fact, it's Republican foundations, things like um, the Walton family, who are the founders of uh, Walmart, or the Fishers, who are the founders of Gap, who normally actually are basically Republicans, but on the question of charters, they're giving huge amounts of dollars. We're talking tens of millions of dollars, sometimes billions on national scale, in the, for the example of the Waltons, to the Democratic Party. And so, you know, the old uh, phrase that the Piper pays, the, whoever pays the Piper chooses the tune, is very much the case in the Democratic Party. And so what you see now in Los Angeles, though, is that the depth of opposition to these policies has made it a very uh, tenuous position for the Democratic leadership to try to straddle. Um, and I think it's an open question to see whether, what way they're going to fall. It's not exactly clear. And part of the context for this, which is worth underlining, is that it's not just that there's these mass strikes, but to a certain extent, the tide turning against charters and privatization and sort of education reform is because at this point it's associated in large part with Trump and Betsy DeVos. So mm-hmm. insofar as the, that's the image that people have of these policies, it's made it much harder, I think, for the Democratic Party as a whole to embrace them in the same way that they'd done when they themselves were in power. This is really good, and I'd like you to go back just a little bit more, Eric, because we have a few minutes to look at the history of this, and you took it all the way back um, to Clinton, and maybe you could sort of put it in the context of this attack on the public sector, really. And what we've seen, you know, in all of these years is a demonization of teachers' unions, a demonization of teachers, and there was this this idea among many parents that, well, right, these school systems are failing our children, so charters, without knowing anything about it, must be the answer. And then we, we look at, you know, the beginning of the fight back, and I'd like you to kind of go through it, especially, um, it, say, in Chicago and then through um, you know, and what Chicago, what the Chicago Teachers Union was able to accomplish, and then you know the red state to strikes to ours. And I know that's a huge question, but let's see what you have to say. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, so again, the the context is important, which is the systematic underfunding of public education, um, really for decades. So this is not a new problem. It was exacerbated in 2008. But the context through which something like charters could be pushed was that schools really have been underfunded, and there was real problems. So, so there's, there's, there's a rational core to the criticism that are leveled against public schools. The question is, what is the solution for this? And the solution that has been proffered by the private, privatizers and really the, both parties up until now is, well, the solution, is, the problem is that they are public. And so you have to bring in some sort of a private market mechanisms and private uh, control in order to somehow overcome the inherent inefficiencies of the public sector. And the reason that the attacks on public education in particular have been so vociferous really for decades is that in some ways this is the last thing we have. This is the last really bastion of the public sector, and it's the last bastion of public sector unionism. Mm. Really, teachers are one of the few industries in the country where you have uh, really actually a robust labor movement. And so if you can smash teachers' unions, that both sets a precedent for the labor movement as a whole, and it makes it so you can impose policies in big cities that in many times it's only the teachers' unions that are spearheading things like opposition to um, tax cuts 
for instance. So it goes beyond education. Um, when we look at the recent push and the turn, I think you're right to point to 2012 and the Chicago strike, because what the 2012 teacher strike in Chicago really represented was the first um, major instance of the type of labor teacher militancy that now we see really percolating nationwide. And so in 2012, uh, for listeners who don't know, the Chicago Teachers Union went on strike um, against over-testing, a lot of the type of corporate reforms the Democrats have been imposing against the threats of school closures. One of the things they did that has now been repeated in Los Angeles in particular is foregrounding um, that the strike is not just for teachers, but it's for the broader working-class community. It's for parents. It's for students. Um, it's for racial justice. And so that kind of model um, was instrumental in some ways in inspiring the crew of people that ended up winning the election in 2014 in Los Angeles. So there's actually a direct connection inspired by Chicago, um, a radical layer of activists who are not in the leadership, um, won the elections to the UTLA, the Teachers Union Los Angeles, and they set about um, to try to emulate what happened in Chicago. And I would argue, and we can talk about that more, that in some ways they've surpassed it because what the UTLA leadership and the union has done, I think is that most <laughs> really remarkable instance of labor organizing. Uh, it's so deep that I think it actually surpasses Chicago in its breadth and in its um, sort of strategic vision. And you could also see, I just wanted to add to that, uh, Eric Blanc, is the amount of community support, but not, but first of all, winning the battle of all of the teachers in the union when they took that strike vote. Um, they had 98% support with 83%, um, you know, voting. And that's, that's, oh, yeah, that's unprecedented. That. That. So, but then maybe we should just quickly talk about that because what we're seeing, and I know your book does this, um, and the book is Red State Revolt, published by Verso, is that this is a fight back. And we're, and the tide is turning against austerity. And it's really interesting because it's, bringing out also the questions of what's happened to education. And we all remember Arne Duncan Obama saying that education is the path out of poverty, but it can't be the path out of poverty when the schools don't educate the kids. And when, in fact, what we're seeing, you know, is that especially in Los Angeles, going back uh, on all of the promises to have, you know, smaller classes. Instead, we're seeing larger classes. And, and you know, and it's it's kind of shocking that, you know, that, you know, people who went to school in the 60s will have had, you know, nurses and counselors and librarians, and they're shocked to learn that their kids don't. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about, you started to talk about the organizing, what they did to win the community support and, and, and wh- how you see it. Right. So maybe we'll... Uh, we can work our way backwards because the 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 number I would throw out from the beginning is 82 percent, which is the polling of the community in Los Angeles support for the strike after one week. And so wow. this is this is really uh, a game changer in a place like Los Angeles, in which the union has been vilified, in which the major media, particularly the LA Times, mm. has systematically uh, for months said that the teachers' strike um, is going to hurt kids, particularly the most underprivileged kids. Um, So despite that, the fact that you have the vast majority of the population supporting the strike is an indication of exactly what you mentioned, which was the really systematic organizing that has happened for years, both amongst the um, rank and file of the teachers' union, but then in turn through that rank and file to go talk to the parents and the broader neighborhoods to which the schools are embedded. 
And so there is a particularity to the schools, which makes it different than a lot of other industries, which is that the workforce has this organic relationship um, to the broader community because of the nature of schools and teaching. And that being said, it's not normally the case that unions are really fully able to lean on that leverage, large part because union leaderships, rather than trying to mobilize their own ranks and in turn trying to mobilize the broader community, have relied on more or less a lobbying method of insider deals with the Democratic Party. And so because the UTLA leadership four years ago consciously set about trying to do a different strategy, that meant that they turned, they transformed their union from almost like a service-type model to an organizing model, which meant that they systematically mm-hmm. had local workplace organizing, things that they called cat teams, where you have one uh, workplace activist in charge of being in touch with dip- 10 different other workplace um, teachers. And then in turn, all of those teachers are asked consistently to talk with parents, talk with students. And so it's percolated outwards now where you have Los Angeles, which is the second largest district a school district in the country, you're talking about literally millions of people, over 600,000 students, millions um, of family members affected, really paralyzing a major sector of, of the city in one of the biggest cities in the wealthiest country in the world. So it's a very significant achievement uh, that the UTLA leadership and the union as a whole has been able to accomplish. And then I wanted to just have you build on that, Eric Blanc, because you're talking about like how, you know, critical the organizing effort has been and it's been a long time in preparation. And even though, you know, Los Angeles is ground zero, we have Oakland teachers ready to go on strike, uh, Denver, you could probably tell us uh, more. But so I wanted you to talk a little bit about how this strike and the method of organizing has shifted the ground, you know, of the Democrats from the mayor to the governor to members of Congress and moving, you know, to support teachers where, as you mentioned very eloquently, they were previously attacked in the L.A. Times. I remember that, you know, even publishing teacher evaluations and and, uh, giving so much credence to them. And so the union power or this this coalition and this idea about how to organize support and organize teachers is really forcing a U-turn in elite educational policy, um, which the Democrats sort of now looking at that, looking at Congress and all the radical new members and the poll, poll after poll saying people are tired of this and they, you know, are more in favor of socialism. Um, so it's sort of like pay attention or be damned, isn't it? Right. Um, I think what you're saying is accurate. What, what there is currently uh, is a different stated position of the Democratic Party leadership. So something that we haven't seen in years, for instance, uh, the DNC um, issues a statement more or less in solidarity with the teachers on strike, whereas you know, a few years ago they would have been uh, issuing the edicts to smash the strike. So that's significant. But if we, shouldn't, we shouldn't underestimate the fact that at this point it's largely still verbal, and the Democrats are not yeah. in power nationwide. Um, and in, in, in Los Angeles, the Democrats that are in power have, up until very recently, tried to straddle the fence. So Garcetti, who's the mayor, really, really, his line this whole time has more or less been to ignore the strike and, and to sort of say both sides need to come together and we need to work within the financial means of the district, which is to say um, he actually buys into, to a certain extent, the myth that the privatizers put forward, which is that there's no money, so the teachers shouldn't be um, too... Um, overzealous with what they're asking for. That being said, there's clearly a shift because over this last week, the sympathy and the strength of the strike is overwhelming. So the tide is turning so much so that 
people like the mayor and uh, Governor Newsom, I think for understandable political reasons, uh, despite maybe their waffling tendencies, have luckily, because we want to win and we want the teachers to win, have come out more and more vocally um, in support. That being said, we don't know what the negotiations uh, are behind the scenes, really. We're not sure how much leverage um, the Democrats are actually putting. So I think we should, um, you know, it, w- it remains to be seen what role the Democratic leadership, both statewide and locally, plays. And I would say that there's a big pending question, because I think, as you mentioned earlier, um, the Democratic politicians have given their verbal support to the teachers in the strikes, and it's significant because it's a bellwether for the general sympathy of the public. That being said, they're very silent on the question of charters and privatization, which is, in fact, the major uh, issue at play in the strike. Because really what the strike is about is the fight to defend the existence of LAUSD, the school district, against the plans of people like Superintendent Butner and the billionaires that are funding him to dismantle it. So to not talk about that is really to sort of hedge their bets and try to get out of this continuing to straddle the line. And I think, though, with continued strikes and continued electoral insurgencies with people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that waffling tendency is going to be more and more untenable because people from below want to see not just words but deeds. And so, you know, I think it's a very exciting and really a new period in which the kind of old methods of the Democratic Party to muddle through things uh, might not work anymore. This is all really interesting. And I should uh, point the listeners to your article in Jacobin recently, and I, I think it's called The Billionaires versus L.A. Schools, in which you also, uh, Eric, go through who the billionaires are. And you mentioned uh, the Waltons and Doris Fisher. Uh, there's Reed Hastings. Eli Broad and, uh, and of course, Butner himself. And you just mentioned it again. But I think the key thing that you were just saying, and we have about four minutes left, is that um, somehow money's being pried loose. And I was surprised to see, even in Forbes magazine, an article this week saying uh, unions do their homework before they go on strike, and they would never go on strike if there was no money. In, in other words, no hope of winning. So money can be found. And you've been saying uh, that we've seen Democrats kind of jumping over each other to pay lip service and support the teachers, because if they don't, you know, they're going to lose their base. Um, and this has caused them or at least some of them, to move away from their uh, former position on education. And I see it all coming together in a way on those who are endorsing Jackie Goldberg, who we just interviewed. And how do you see, you know, that and this, the new sort of tactic, like to have people like Jackie Jackie Goldberg, who is, you know, fighting for public education, get back on the board and try to turn the tide of, you know, those who are there because they've been bankrolled by the pro-charter groups? Right. You know, that's a, that's a really good question. And I, and I think that the um, overall story is a conflict between a Democratic Party establishment nationwide, statewide, citywide, that really is tied and continues to be tied to big capital. Um, and between that apparatus and the mass of people that vote Democrat and the unions, and really now a more radical insurgency that uh, or people running on the Democratic Party ballot line, but who really I don't think um, necessarily uh, fit in with the politics of the Democratic Party as a whole. In many ways, it represent a radical rupture with what the policies of the party have been and really in most places still continue to be. So the conflict that we're seeing is very much um, going to be exacerbated. And so I think things like Jackie Goldberg running, who is uh, really a remarkable figure, 
um, is a bellwether from below of the types of possibilities when you have people that the labor unions are themselves putting forward. So rather than the old policy of the labor room, which was to more or less support any Democrat running, <laughs> if you see people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Jack Gilbert who are really raising the issues of working people, that has a uh, really an inspiring effect on possibilities for doing that elsewhere because people see that and they're like, well, why can't we do that here? So I'm hopeful that, you know, you can see that in school board races and statewide. But it's going to take more pressure because even even with this type of electoral insurgency, if you don't have strikes, if you don't have mass movements, you know, those types of folks, even the best ones in power, can come under a lot of pressure and cede to the old politics as usual. And don't you think that's sort of the takeaway that, you know, the the revival of the strike and the central power of labor is really the key thing here that strikes work, at least so far? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, this is the big point is that none of this happens if workers don't withhold their labor and shut down the institutions. And so, you know, I would say that hopefully one of the possibilities is now with the teacher strike wave clearly continue. We're talking Denver, Virginia, really all across the country. What I'm hopeful about now, and, you know, this might be over projecting, but if you have enough of a sustained strike wave within teachers, it becomes a matter of time before other workers in other sectors, maybe a public sector begin with. But right now, for instance, start doing the same thing or at least start considering doing the same thing. So, you know, we have a federal shutdown and a lot of people have been talking like, why don't workers who aren't getting paid talk about taking job actions? Yeah, and so TSA. there's really a potential, ex- very potentially explosive dynamic at play, because when you show how workers have power by withholding their labor, that's a genie that's hard to put back in the bottle. So it's a very, uh, I think, hopeful moment for people who want to see a real systematic change in this country. Great. And we're going to have to leave it there. But I like your final note, Eric Blanc. And Eric writes on labor movements, past and present. He used to be a high school teacher in the Bay Area, now a doctoral student in sociology at NYU, and has been writing about the 2018 19 Teachers' Revolts in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, now Los Angeles. And look for his book, Red State Revolt, The Teacher Strike Wave and Working Class Politics, just published by Verso. And also check out his articles in The Guardian and Jacobin. Eric, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Great. Thanks, Susie. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Mm-hmm.